Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Comic Source Podcast. I'm your host, Jace. This is your new Comics Wednesday episode for September 29th, 2021. Quite a few good books out this week. Just a reminder, if you're looking for the DC content that comes out on our Tuesday episodes with full details, full spoilers, full breakdown, Rocky from Comic Boom and I get deep into the story. Uh, so it's what you guys want from DC. So we're, we're giving it to you. Uh, as opposed to these new comic book day episodes that come on a Wednesday where I talk about the Marvel comics and the independence uh, spoiler free. So uh, if you want to check out the DC stuff, go check out yesterday's episode. If you want to hear about the other books that are coming out today that I've already had a chance to read, then you're in the right place. So let's tackle the elephant in the room first. Amazing Spider-Man number 74 it's legacy issue number 875, and it's finally the end of the Kindred story. So written by Nick Spencer with Christos Gage, we have Marcelo Ferreira, Mark Bagley, Z. Carlos, Dio Neves, Carlos Gomez, Yvonne Fiorelli, and Humberto Ramos, all on pencils. Wayne Fokker and Marcelo Ferreira. Andrew Hennessy and Andy Owens, Z. Carlos, Dio Neves, Carlos Gomez, Ian Farello, and Victor Olazaba on inks, Andrew Crosley, Edward, Edgar Delgado, and Alex Sinclair on colors, Joe Caramani handles the letters. That's for the main story. There's also a couple of backups. One is just uh, basically a two-page spread that gives a brief history of Spider-Man, which I thought was pretty fun. Uh, by Sean Ryan and Gustavo Duarte. And then there's another story in the back called Janine uh, with Peter Riley. And I guess Janine Godby is her name. I'm, I'm not that familiar with the character. Uh, Elizabeth Tyne, I guess, is also her name. Basically, Ben Riley's girlfriend. Uh, and anyway, that story, as I said, called Janine by Zeb Wells, art by uh, Ivan Fiorelli, colors by D. Cunniff, letters by Joe Caramagna. And there's also a very heartfelt story about Peter at his Uncle Ben's uh, gravesite with art by Todd Nock. Stories by Christo Gage. Colors is, uh, are by Rochelle Rosenberg. Joe Caramani does the colors on that one, too. So it's a bit of an oversized issue, you know, based on the fact that it's issue 875. And I, I kind of wondered, thought it was kind of strange they were ending Dick Spencer's run with issue 74. But really, when you think about Legacy 875, I, I guess that kind of makes sense. Um, so it, it is the end, as I said, of the Kindred storyline, finally. Nick Spencer's entire run has been telling this story. There have been a few other storylines and plot lines, but even they didn't really, even if he tried to make them the, the main thread, you know, plot A, Kindred was always running in the background and, and they always tied back to Kindred in, in one way or the other. And this really has been the story he wanted to tell. And, you know, Nick Spencer, he, he has a tendency to want to tell these big epic stories in scope. And I, I keep going back to his morning glories with uh, run with Joe Eisma, which they never finished 50 issues, which was epic, you know? Um, but like so many comic writers, I, I think he struggles with, okay, how do I end it in a satisfying way? And I sort of feel the same way about this kindred storyline. You know, when you let it go on that long, it needs a big 
epic story. And, you know, unfortunately, maybe it's because Peter's been around so long, the character of Spider-Man, and you start running out of stories to tell. And, and you know, as a writer, you come on and you love Spider-Man as a kid. Maybe a particular storyline or era has nostalgia for you and, and you want to you want to pull something from that era into your story that you're going to tell. And then what ends up happening is you end up changing that story or changing the context of that story that you loved from back in the day, because you want to add to it. You want, and I get it, right? Like we're all fans. And, you know, even as a, a comic creator, it doesn't preclude you from being a fan. So when you have all the history and all the stories and all the, eras of Amazing Spider-Man, there's a lot of stuff that you can reach back to. And certainly the argument could be made that Green Goblin is the most iconic of Spider-Man villains. And, you know, Norman Osborn keeps coming back time and time again. And even Harry Osborn was Green Goblin at one point, led to the Hobgoblin and the Demigoblin. Like all that stems from, from Norman Osborn. All that stems from Green Goblin, even to the point that Norman Osborn was, was more than a Spider-Man villain at one point, right? When you talk about Siege and some of these other eras of of Marvel and whatnot. So it's not, it's not a bad idea that Nick Spencer chose to tie in the kindred to all of that. Um, but it does feel like he dragged it out for quite a while. And at the end of the day, when everything is spelled out, it still, it makes sense, but it still feels really convoluted. And again, I, I'm not necessarily blaming Nick Spencer for that. It's just a, a product of if you're going to tell this epic story of Norman Osborn and Harry Osborn and the Green Goblin legacy, it's sort of necessarily complicated because it's had a complicated history because there've been so many twists and turns because a writer comes in and wants to play with those toys, but how do you keep it fresh and how do you do something new that hasn't been done before? And how do you, you know, come up with shocking ideas and ways to surprise the readers? Well, you, you have to continually, keep adding to the story and, Oh, here's what you didn't know. And how about this? And how about that? And it's a clone and it's not a clone and this person's dead and they're brought back. And it just, it gets really, really complicated. And Spider-Man's history is getting complicated to the point of it's rivaling X corner of the Marvel universe. You know, when you talk about X-Men continuity, now you're really in the weeds. Um, so all that to say that the story does end I don't know that I would say it, it comes to a satisfying conclusion. I'm satisfied that it's over and it makes sense as convoluted as it is. But the problem is it, the pacing of this final issue. And again, it gets plenty of pages to finish telling the story. Um, it's like 60 pages or so. Uh, so there's, there's plenty of room for the story to breathe, but just as everything's ramping up, all of a sudden the climax is over, you know, like it's built up to this sort of epic confrontation. And then all of a sudden it just, it ends. And it didn't really have um, like a heroic moment that you would expect from a Spider-Man story. And maybe that's Nick Spencer's way of doing something with Spider-Man that hasn't been done before. But I kind of liken it to the ending of um, the second Wonder Woman movie where, yeah, Wonder Woman wins in the end, but it's through none of her own agency. It, it, it's not because of some heroic act that, that she did. 
So I don't know. I, I felt like it was kind of strange. I just felt like, okay, you're building something, you're building something, you're building something, and you're expecting some big event or big heroic deed or action from Spider-Man, and it, it never comes. And so it ends up feeling a little less than what it could have been, um, which I suppose is a very good metaphor for this entire run. As long as it's lasted and as epic as the story has been in, in terms of scope and length, I don't know that it ever fulfilled its potential. So I guess we'll have to to wait and see. Um, like I said, the, the backup story with Pete at the graveyard uh, next to Uncle Ben's graveside is is poignant and emotional, and uh, and I enjoyed it. The uh, the Janine storyline again. I'm not that familiar with what Ben Riley's been doing since the Clone Saga, honestly, since the '90s. Um, so I don't really. I, I had to look up who this Janine person is. Janine Godby, Elizabeth Tyne, whatever name you want to put it under. Um, but just in the few pages that we get here uh, from Zeb Wells, I, I'm very intrigued. Uh, I'm looking forward to that because we do know, based on solicits, that. Ben Riley is going to be back in the, the regular Spider-Man costume soon here. So Amazing Spider-Man is going to three times a month. I've talked about that. don't know that I'm super excited to, to have it, um, but I don't know. Maybe it'll be a fantastic story. What comes after that? I guess we're going to have to wait and see. I would hope that it would go back to once or twice a month with one writer instead of this team of like five or what is it? Um, Zeb Wells, Kelly Thompson, Saladin Ahmed, Cody Ziegler, and, and Patrick Gleason. So five 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 writers and Gleason's handling some of the art too. So five writers, uh, which I guess you need when you're putting it out three times a month. Right. Um, so hopefully uh, I'd like to get back to, to one, two issues a month, but I don't know. It, it's interesting. Spider-Man for whatever reason, it seems to get, and I, I like it. It seems to get these writers that do really long runs. I mean, before, uh, Nick Spencer, it was Dan Slott for what, 10 years? Those kind of long runs just don't happen anymore. So, um, I, yeah, I kind of like that. I kind of like that that's a throwback because you get, you know, a long, a long vision uh, from, from one writer. Um, I mean, look at Immortal Hulk that had 50 issues from Al Ewing. So, you know, I'd be down for somebody to do a 50 issue run on Spider Man uh, if it's the right writer. But again, uh, I think Nick Spencer, his story, and it, it wasn't that his run on Spider-Man went too long. It's just that 75 issues and you only told one story, man, basically. Um, it, the Kindred story was just way too long. Glad it's over. So uh, anyway, it ended. I'd probably give it like a C grade for this, this issue um, for that main story, but at least it's over. It's good. And I'm going to be really curious in... I don't know, four, five, six years to look back on the Nick Spencer run of Spider-Man and see, see what people think of it after, you know, enough time has gone by to sort of give us some perspective. Uh, all right. Next book I'm going to talk about is 10 Years to Death. This is a story by Aaron Douglas. The art is by Cliff Richards. Colors are by Guy Major. Dave Sharp does the letters. It's from Aftershock. It's a one shot. And it's basically, um, it's a horror story. It's a ghost story. Uh, set in a prison and it's creepy and moody with some really great artworks, really fine lines, uh, emotional, impactful art, 
moody colors that suit the tone of the story. I was really impressed. Uh, for those not familiar, if, if the name didn't ring a bell, Aaron Douglas, he played the chief on uh, Battlestar Galactica, like the newer Battlestar Galactica, the reboot from the 2000s. And, uh, and I guess he's also a comic fan. So I don't think he's written many comics, if any, before. Um, but I know he's friends with Joe Pruitt and he's a fan of Aftershock. And um, I, I dove right into this and read it and really enjoyed it. And then I went back because I was curious if, if Aaron had a co-writer because usually somebody, and again, I don't think he has a lot of comic credits to his name. I was really impressed with the scripting. I was impressed with the, the pacing. You know, I always talk about pacing as the hardest thing to get right when you're a, a kind of an inexperienced comic creator. But the other thing is that the dialogue can come across as sort of corny, especially when you're trying to do horror and inject that kind of creepy feel. So I was super impressed, really enjoyed it. It's not, um, it's not a story that's like groundbreaking, you know, blow you away, some kind of twist or whatever but it sets a mood early. It follows through with that mood and that suspense the entire time. And it has a very satisfying ending. And it's technically a very well put together comic. You know, when I'm talking about pacing and talking about scripting, the art is fantastic. So really impressed. I guess I shouldn't be like, I sound like I'm surprised that I'm so impressed, uh, but it's an aftershock book. So you kind of expect it, you know, but again, this isn't, somebody who is known for, you know, it's not a known comic creator. It's, it's Aaron Douglas. So I'd be very curious to talk to Aaron um, and hear about his uh, experiences and how he kind of honed his, his craft. And I would be, uh, I would be excited to, to read more stories from, uh, from Aaron after uh, checking this out. So I was really impressed. You want a quick one and done really cool, spooky story, especially with Halloween coming up, like, Oh, sitting down reading this on Halloween. That's a, that's a good, that's a good time. So I do recommend picking it up, everybody. Uh, okay, up next, I'm going to talk about uh, another Marvel book. This one is a long time coming. It's Darkhold Alpha, and it's from writer Steve Orlando. The art is by Cian Tormey. Jesus Arbatob handles the colors, Clayton Cowell on letters. This was supposed to come out last year, and then the pandemic delayed it. If you're not familiar, the Darkhold is a book in the Marvel Universe that basically holds these like evil spells. Supposedly, the, the cover of the book uh, or the binding or, or what have you is covered in the skin of like an old, ancient, malevolent god. Um, and Sithon is, is this other kind of elderly god who apparently like killed his brother and skinned this spell book in this um in in the skin of his his brother and so supposedly the the way the lore goes is that if you read just as a regular human or mutant or whatever normal person not a evil god if you read the dark hold it, it drives you crazy like sithon um it inhabits you or or infects you or or what have you and he gets a foothold on you and uses you to try to return to earth or or whatever. So it's, it's a pretty dark sort of uh, corner of the, of the Marvel universe. And if you think about it a lot, it, it 
it's kind of creepy and gross actually so um leave it to dr doom to of course go hunting for the book and find it and and be arrogant enough that he thinks he can defeat this ancient god so that's kind of where this all kicks off and uh scarlet witch sort of plays the role of the, the hero here so i'm again this was supposed to come out last year long before the death of scarlet witch and everything so you kind of just have to take that with a grain of salt um that she maybe is dead i don't know we saw her resurrected last week in trial of magneto number two so who knows where she's at these days but again this happens before all that um trial of magneto and scarlet which is recent death so uh but anyway she gets together a group of heroes to try to be the champions that can uh, defeat Sithon, rescue Dr. Doom, what have you. And it's sort of mirroring um, the ancient lore of the, uh, the dark hole and Sithon and, and however he was defeated, you know, the last time. So she recruits a, a pretty cool team of recognizable heroes to each play a role and uh, defeat Sithon. But then, they each have to read a little bit of the Darkhold book because that, that's the way you get to Sithon's realm, right? You have to be infected with just a little bit of the madness of the book, but you can't go too far. Um, and so that's basically what goes down. And then as you can imagine, things take a turn and they don't exactly go the way Scarlet Witch uh, intended. So I, I was kind of back and forth in this book. I didn't know if I really wanted to read it. When you talk about sort of the magical corner of the marvel universe i'm not really that interested what sort of made the decision for me was the fact that steve orlando's writing it and i'm a big fan of steve orlando i think he's a fantastic comic book writer he loves comics he's a fan um and so that's the reason i i ended up picking it up and it, it was good i did enjoy it but there's still a part of me that's like is this really for me it's just it's not the corner of the marvel universe that really interests me so I don't know if I'm going to finish it. I, I haven't decided the way it's structured, the kind of, it's kind of like an event. So you have the dark hold alpha, which I'm talking about, and then you have five one shots and they each star uh, one of the heroes. So I'm not going to go through the names of them because I don't want to give away who, who the five members of the team are, but so you get five one shots, like the dark hold, whatever, Captain America, let's say he's not one of them. So that's why I'm using him as an example, but let's say, you know, Darkhold, Captain America, number one, and then Darkhold, Ghost Rider, number one, you know, and so on and so forth. Ghost Rider's not one either. Uh, but anyway, you go through those five one shots and then the whole story culminates in the Darkhold Omega number one, which will finish up the, uh, the story. So I do like the heroes that are recruited. Um, every one of them is, is interesting to me. Some I'm big fans of. So I don't know. I may wait and see who's writing each individual one. Cause I'm not sure if Steve's writing them all, but I guess I'll, I, I might wait and see, or maybe I'll wait till the whole thing's out and then read it all together. Um, so, you know, if you, if you're into that sort of thing, the sorcery, Dr. Strange stories, ma the magic part of the Marvel universe, you'll probably enjoy it. So you have to decide for yourself on that one. I'm not recommending it. I'm not not recommending it. <laughs> I'm leaving that one up to you guys. Uh, all right. Up next is uh, Image Book, The Department of Truth, issue number 13. This is from writer James Tynan. Martin Simmons handles the art. The letters are by Aditya Bidikar. Design uh, is by Dylan Todd. This was a fantastic issue. So it's been 
Department of Truth has been a little hard to follow at times in terms of like what exactly is the Department of Truth, who is Hawk, who is Cole, because we kind of got thrown into the deep end of the pool right from the start, learning about the Department of Truth, which if you're not familiar with it, it's basically the secret government agency whose job it is to go out into the world and sort of debunk conspiracy theories. Because in, in this world, in, on, on the earth that exists in the Department of Truth universe here, if enough people believe in something, it actually manifests and becomes true. So enough people believe in Bigfoot, then Bigfoot's out there stalking around in the woods. If enough people believe in UFOs, UFOs are out there abducting people. So the Department of Truth is out there sowing misinformation if necessary, or just exposing the truth or starting their own conspiracy theories to sort of uh, drown out the others. Internet's a big tool for them, obviously. Um, and that's what the, the Department of Truth is all about. Now, in the first 12 issues, we've gotten a little bit of that, a little bit of the history, but we've gotten more of, hey, let's focus on these conspiracy theories. Here's James Tynan telling a Bigfoot story. Here's James Tynan telling um, the story uh, of Satanism. Here's James Tynan telling the story of UFOs. And we haven't focused that much on the dynamics or politics of the Department of Truth itself or its kind of malevolent other side of the coin called the Black Hats, who for some reason want conspiracy theories, flat earth and whatever to emerge and, and destroy the world. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know. Again, we haven't, I feel like we haven't gotten enough information on their motivations yet to really know. But what this issue does, what issue 13 does, is it, it gives us a lot of information on both the history of coal and, uh, and Hawk who I guess you would call him sort of the fixer of the Department of Truth. You know, he's the one that really goes out there and gets his hands dirty. Um, but he's got some secrets uh, of his own. And so he, he sort of comes clean to Cole in this one. And you get a lot of, a lot of contextual information about the Department of Truth, about Black Hat, about Cole, about hawk and it really i feel like this issue it really answered a lot of questions it raised some questions as well but it, it answered a lot of questions and it gave a lot of context to the story so far so i'm hoping now that i've read this issue i'll find time to go back and reread the first one through 12 all the way up through 13 because i think it'll make a great read reading it all together just felt like this was a huge chunk of story that really laid out a lot of things as opposed to some of the other issues where again because it's conspiracy theories and half truths and whatnot sort of when you read it it things aren't just laid out in black and white you know you kind of have to decide for yourselves uh, on a lot of things which is how a book about conspiracy theories should be it shouldn't be black and white because a lot of the stuff is mysterious and uh, ephemeral um but this is not this is this is po the politics in this book. This is motivation. This is the history. These, this is what actually happened. Um, so it's pretty interesting. This is probably one of my favorite issues of the series so far. So definitely recommend Department of Truth. Uh, all right, let's flip back over to Marvel. I'm going to talk about Darkhawk number two from writer Kyle Higgins. Juan and Ramirez does the art. Eric Arsenega on colors. Travis Lineham on letters. I wasn't a huge 
fan of the first issue of this. And uh, basically, the Darkhawk armor has gone to a boy named Connor Young. He's a 17-year-old basketball star, and he, he's got you know his whole life ahead of him. He's got a scholarship, already talking about where he's going to be drafted into the NBA. And all of a sudden, he, uh, he collapses. He goes to the hospital. He's diagnosed with MS, and he's struggling to figure out what that means for his future. Is he going to lose his scholarship? Is he still going to be able to go to college? Is he going to be able to play basketball? Um, and all of a sudden in the midst of all that, the, the amulet shows up and he becomes dark Hawk. So it was emotional, but it was also a little bit messy and I didn't necessarily feel like I had a, I had any kind of way to, to relate to Connor, to, to feel that I had a connection with him. The second issue starts off with Connor and his father dealing with that diagnosis and, and some of the fallout of that. And it's so emotional and so poignant that I felt like I was starting to have an understanding. Um, Cause you know, we all go through stuff and I, I felt like I'm okay. I'm starting to have a, a touch point to be able to relate to Connor just in terms of, you know, you think your life's going to turn out one way and it goes in a different direction and you know, the challenges we face and all of a sudden this guy who thought he knew the path of his life and who he was, you know, his self-identity uh, it's all been thrown in flux. And I think, you know, we all kind of relate to that, especially when you're at that age in high school, trying to figure out what your, your future is. And so I thought this issue was a lot better. Um, and again, it's, it's probably just me. Uh, first issue was probably just as good. If I go back and read it now, I'm, I mean, it might, I might see it differently and it might hit me better. I might connect with it more after reading the second issue. This is kind of what I expected. I mean, the whole reason I was never a Dark Hawk fan back in the 90s, but the whole reason that I read the first issue was because it's Kyle Higgins, right? He's one of my favorite writers, just outstanding at, at crafting story and writing compelling characters. But yeah, for some reason, I just, and again, it's probably me. I just, it just missed me. That first issue just missed me. But the second issue, it pulled me in. It pulled me in with the emotionality of it, with things Connor's going through, his relationship with his father, his relationship with his best friend. And we haven't gotten any answers so far about uh, why the amulet, why Connor ended up with the amulet, what he's going to do as Darkhawk. But yeah, fast paced, a lot of action. There's something we uh, learn at the end of the first issue about Connor's best friend. That was a bit of a curveball. And what I loved is that Kyle didn't drag that out in terms of, okay, we know something about Connor's best friend that Connor himself doesn't know. And, and, you know, so often in comics that drags out for just issues and issues and issues. And, you know, Connor finds out at the worst possible time that his friend Derek has, has been keeping something from him. No, Kyle doesn't go in for that. Like we, Connor finds out the, the secret, this issue. Now it can be dealt with. Now it can be, played with now it can be explored in a narrative sense rather than you know doing that old tropey comic thing where you can't understand how uh connor isn't figuring out what Derek's keeping from him because it seems so obvious to us as as the readers so if you were a fan of dark hawk back in the day if you never read dark hawk at all either way i think you dig this this series i will say that um Although you can pick up issue two and, and hit the ground running, I do think 
reading issue one does give more context to issue two. And it's probably why I felt issue two hit uh, and landed harder. So uh, the one one in Ramirez art is, is fantastic. It's not quite as clean as I've seen one and B before, but then again, you know, it's dark Hawk. And, and despite him being able to fly and, and being pretty powerful, he's a pretty street level character in a way. And this feels like a, a very grounded story. So I don't mind that the art's not quite as clean. And uh, the other thing I'll say about that is Eric Arsenega's colors uh, do a good job. They're, they're not, this isn't a really brightly colored book. Like it doesn't have that classic superhero feel with primary colors and it shouldn't because you're dealing with some pretty heavy concepts here, right? In terms of Connor being diagnosed with MS, street level character, crime, that sort of stuff. So uh Another book that I, I definitely recommend, like, you know, I recommend anything Kyle Higgins writes basically because he's that good. So, uh, all right, next up, first image book I'm going to talk about is Echo Lands, issue number two, Hope's Crucible. This is from J.H. Williams and W. Hayden Blackman. They're the co-creators and the co-writers. And then, of course, J.H. Williams III does the art and the design. Dave Stewart does the colors. Todd Klein on letters. Man, what I love about this book, so it's not in, it's not laid out in in portrait form. It's laid out in, in landscape. So what I mean by that is like, take your normal comic book that is taller than it is wide and turn it on its side. And that's how you open it up. So you get these long pages, you know, pages that are wider than they are tall. And it's perfect for the type of storytelling that J.H. Williams tells, you know, if you ever saw any of his Batman, uh, Batwoman work rather, Promethea, you know, he likes to play with design and the way panels are laid out and, and use various story elements, whether it be smoke or, or whatever to, as his panel borders and to break things up. And so I uh, just, I mean, beyond how gorgeous this book is, uh, it's been a pretty fun ride and pretty fast paced so far. It's, it's basically a story of I guess we'll say an alternate earth. And I mean, if you take the name of it, right, Echo Land, it's like an, maybe an echo of earth because San Francisco Bay is mentioned and some other real world locations are mentioned, but there's also the events, these events that have happened that are uh, mentioned as disasters that obviously haven't happened in, in our own world, right? Like the grain riots or the season of smoke or, or what have you. And certainly when you read the story, you know, one person's a vampire. There's all these magic wielders. Um, it almost feels like, you know, that Dungeons and Dragons cartoon way back in the day on Saturday mornings where, you know, this guy's a barbarian and this guy's a cavalier and this guy's an acrobat, acrobat and this guy's a thief and this guy's a wizard. It's like that, right? It, it, it very much feels like a, a Dungeons and Dragons party, you know, like a, a group of people that are together and they each have their own sort of set of skills and their own role to play. And they're in this fantastical setting that has a mix of magic and mechanical devices and robots and pirates and, you know, real locations and shades of technology that we remember, but this weirdness too. So it's like the best of all worlds like this this mashup this amalgamation of all these different concepts and when you mix that with jh williams art 
uh, an evil wizard, which is sort of a classic trope when you want to talk about sort of a Dungeons and Dragons campaign, right? Like it's always the evil wizard who rules the plane of existence or, or whatever it is. Um, and then you have your, you know, intrepid heroes who are sort of the scrappy underdogs. That's very much what this is in a way, um, starring a, a girl who uh, maybe there's more to her than, than meets the eye. Um, you know, we say hope's uh, crucible, uh, hope being the, the main character of the story who sort of like a red riding hood type character. She's a, she's a thief. She wears a, a cloak with a red hood and she has powers that she doesn't really understand or, or know how to use. And could she be the one, you know, again, to borrow another trope of fantasy, could she be the one that's destined to defeat the evil wizard uh, who's ruling all who most people don't even necessarily realize how evil he is or all the horrible things that he's done. So again, there's a lot of sort of classic ideas, but what I love about what J.H. Uh, Williams and uh, Blackman are doing here is they're, they're, t- they're twisting and turning and putting their own spin on these sort of classic character archetypes. And then again, I hate to keep harping on it, but you go back to like, what's the reason a lot of people are going to pick up the book in the first place, right? Well, because J.H. Williams is doing the art and he's a fantastic artist. He's a modern master, right? So you, you pick it up to look at the beautiful art and check it out. And you say, well, you know, it's worth, it's worth the price of admission just to, to see J.H. Williams draw. So I'm going to give it a chance. And then when you do that, you find out that it's this really cool story that, you know, again, to uh, basically put it in a, you know, most simplified terms, reminds me of a Dungeons and Dragons campaign um, in, in the best possible way. So I can't wait to learn more about Hope and her companions. And I can't wait to see more J.H. Williams art. And again, I love the fact that this book is laid out um, horizontally, basically. It's, it's fantastic. So I uh, wasn't necessarily too sure of what to make of it after reading the, the first issue, but I feel like I'm a much better, better handle on the story and, and what kind of the tone not necessarily where they're going, but just the kind of the tone and the feel of the world they're building. So, you know, I did mention to JH on, on Twitter that we'd love to have him on to talk about it. And he responded favorably, um, but I didn't follow up on that because I, you know, I wanted to read, well, let me read a second issue so I can kind of have some context and know what we're talking about rather than have him on after the first issue. And then I am just ending up asking him, well, what does this mean? What does that mean? Where's this going? You know, and we know we don't like to do spoilers and necessarily talk to creators about what their ideas are. We want them to be able to tell the story rather than having it all spoiled. Um, but now that we have a better idea, I feel like uh, probably could have them on and have a, a substantial conversation now, although I may, may wait for one more issue. We'll see. But anyway, I recommend it. Definitely. Um, I would think that you could just pick this up off the rack at your comic shop and flip through it. And you'll probably want to buy it if you're a fan of comic book art, because it's spectacular. Uh, All right. Another image book is up next. Uh, It's the good Asian. I think we're up to issue number five. Uh, This is by porn sack pizza show. The art is by Alexander uh, Tafengi. Lee Luffridge does the colors, Jeff Powell on letters and design. 
kind of interesting. Much like Department of Truth, this is a issue that sort of lays everything out. It uh, is a lot of flashback to uh, our main character, Edison Hark. It's a lot of uh, flashback to his, uh, his history, his past, his um, relationships with uh, Frankie Caraway. You know, the, the adopted brother that we saw was killed at the end of the last, uh, the last issue. And obviously he's feeling a lot of guilt about that. So, you know, we, we see Edison when he was young and the Caraways basically took him in. We see his relationship with uh, Frankie develop. We see his relationship with his adopted sister, Victoria develop. We get some understanding of, of where the bad blood comes in and, and why his relationships with his adopted brother and sister went the way they went. Um, so it adds a lot of context to the story. So much like that was my favorite issue of Department of Truth because it gave a lot of context. This is my favorite issue of, um, of The Good Asian so far because, again, it, this added so much context and gave us so much insight into why Edison is the way that he is. Um, but it doesn't sacrifice anything that Pornsack or Alexander have done so far in the story in terms of establishing that mood of, uh, you know, crime noir in, in the 1920s, 1930s. Um, obviously it's still during the, the Chinese exclusion act. So that idea of an outsider, this idea of, of Edison Hark being a man in two worlds that is accepted by neither, right? Because he's uh, like the only Asian detective, what they would call Oriental back then. Um, and he, you know, he became a, a police officer to, to help the Asian community, but they don't accept him because they see Edison as betraying them and becoming part of the establishment. Whereas, you know, all the other white police officers and, and the, the law enforcement community, they don't accept Edison because he's an outsider. So he's got a foot in each world and he's accepted by neither. And we talked to Pornsec about that when he came on the show before the first issue dropped. All of that is still here in this issue, but it's under the surface. It's, it's under the subtext. It, it's still there in the background, but it's not the, the driving force like it's been in some of the other issues. Because what this issue does is it really focuses on the history of Edison, as I said. So it adds context to his character and why he's made the choices he's made, why he is the way that he is. But the creative team doesn't forget what the, what the current narrative is. Because at the end, we end up with a fantastic cliffhanger um, and some really dramatic scenes in that alley where Frankie Caraway met his end at, at, the, at the conclusion of the last issue. So it's another fantastic comic that I really recommend. Um, so I, I think this is 12 issues or 10 issues overall. Uh, and I do know that the, uh, the first volume, the trade paperback, drops today as well. Uh, Pornsack posted on social media the other day that uh, Image and and the creative team on Good Asian decided to to drop the uh, trade on the same day as as issue five. So if you're curious uh, and you haven't gotten any of the issues so far, I definitely recommend picking up the trade. If you've been following along and picking up the singles, you definitely want to pick up issue five and put it at the top of your stack because you're going to want to read it uh, first. It's that good. Uh, okay. 
up next, I'm going to talk about uh, another Marvel book. This is a big event a lot of people have been anticipating. It's Inferno, number one, from writer Jonathan Hickman. Valerio Shit is the artist. David Curiel does the colors. Joe Sabino on letters. And, of course, Tom Muller on design, as he has been for all of the uh, uh, Jonathan Hickman X-Men books. So, you know, Inferno has history. That term has history, that word as history and context within the, the Marvel universe uh, and certainly the X-Men corner of the Marvel universe, but this is much different um, than anything that's associated with it from before when it was more about this uh, demonic invasion that uh, was attacking the mutant community. This, this, if anything's being burned down, it's the mutant community itself sort of from within but maybe with a little bit of help from Orcus. There's a lot of context in this issue. There's that word again. Um, but we flash back in this issue to things that we saw back in, in House of X and Powers of X about Moira uh, McTaggart and her powers and her abilities. And so the ground is shifting. This, this feels like sort of the beginning of the final confrontation between Orcus and mutants, between Orcus and the X-Men. Um, I'm, I'm a little reluctant to use that word final only because when you have um, a really cool, uh, complex and interesting sort of uh, antagonist like Orcus, you, you wouldn't want to say, well, this is the final Orcus story because you know there may be some writer that comes down the line that has a really cool idea for Orcus because they are such an interesting and fascinating um, antagonist, you know, villain, bad guys. Um, Cause you can kind of understand where they're coming from. They're, they're they don't want to be replaced. Uh, you know, and you, you can't blame them necessarily for fighting for their survival. You might disagree with their methods, but you know, any, any living being is a uh, sentient living being is going to, fight to, to survive when faced with extinction. So, um, but we know Hickman is leaving the X-Men corner of the Marvel universe once this story is done. So this feels like an appropriate time. Not that I necessarily want him to leave, but this feels like an appropriate story for him to tell because it does harken back to some of the uh, scenes and uh, things that we learned, as I said, at the very beginning of his run in house of X and powers of X so it's political and there's machinations going on behind the scenes, just like there have been throughout Hickman's run. And so if you've been reading X-Men, you're going to absolutely love this. If you haven't been reading X-Men, I still think you can pick this up and enjoy it. So, you know, I have read House of X and Powers of X, but I'm not very far into the dawn of X era of, of X-Men. You know, I'm a couple, a couple of years behind at this point, um, just with stacks of books waiting for me to, to read them, just trying to find time. But I felt it important enough because this is Hickman's sort of last X-Men story he's going to tell. Not to say he's not going to have input into how the X-Men line plays out moving forward, because you know he did put that team together that's going to continue writing it and he's talked to all them about it and you know they have his blessing and what have you to continue with some of his ideas but he's not going to be involved on day-to-day basis so i was like well i i kind of want to see how it all ends up even if i'm skipping to the last chapter 
Uh, but I thought this was fantastic. And I think if you've read House of X and Powers of X, again, because he's pulling from some of those ideas of, of stuff he introduced way back, um, that you can pick this up if you've just read those two miniseries and, and you'll have enough context to understand what's going on. Uh, and I should also say that the art by uh, Valeria Shit is is or Shitty is is fantastic. Um, colors are are very similar to what you saw in House of X and Powers of X, so they're not really bright or um, or primary, um, but they work. They they work for the tone of the story. And then yeah, like I said, the the Valerio Shitty line work is is just superb. It's fantastic. It's detailed. It's emotional. Some great scenes of, of Moira. Um, if anything, the panels tend to be a little bit small at times, but it's only because it's such a densely dense story. You get a big chunk of story here. It's like 50 pages, 48 pages. So you get a lot of story. Um, Shitty's line work is, is pretty fine which allows the art to, to show a lot of emotion and a lot of detail. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard to find fault with anything. Uh, I, I was blown away. Like I read this and I, my first thought was, man, I was, I wish I was caught up on all these X-Men books that I'm two years behind on. So uh, I definitely recommend picking this up and I can't wait to see what other X fans think of this uh, when it drops. So, uh, okay. Up next, it's another uh, Aftershock book. It's Out of Body, number four. I Dreamed of Strange Lips. It's by writer Peter Milligan. Anaki Miranda handles the art. Ava Dela Cruz on colors. Sal Cipriano on letters. This book continues to be fantastic. Again, no surprise, Aftershock books tend to be really good. If you're not familiar with uh, the idea of the story, basically the first issue of Out of Body opens up with this guy who's uh, he's sort of in a coma, but not really. Like He's in... He's in the hospital. He was attacked the night before outside a bar in an alley, and he's, he's sort of trapped in his body. He can't communicate. He can't talk. There's like a disconnect between his brain and um, his body, you know, his physical body. But he's aware. He can hear people talking. He can blink, but they don't realize that he's aware. Um, and he's just sort of trapped. And um, there's a, uh, a girl who's a psychic who lives hundreds of miles away who senses him because this guy's sort of he's in the in-between space right between being alive and dead the liminal space they call it he's able to leave his body his astral self's able to leave his body he can communicate with a psychic and he's he's using that ability as she's teaching him how to travel around and and try to figure out who attacked him and why and try to figure out a way to to basically restore his health meanwhile there are some villainous uh characters in the piece who uh one guy sort of deals with black magic and he worships some sort of demon evil person kind of entity who feeds on people's astral selves um and the the closer they are to being alive like this the sooner they've died uh the more like nourishment he gets from them uh this this demonic entity or evil entity so this black magician is is obviously because this guy's not even dead yet he's trying to get his astral form because it'll it'll have more light like life energy and be more sustaining and more delicious to this evil entity so there are a lot of moving parts it's really fantastic um love the dialogue love the pacing 
love the, the whole idea of the story that Peter Milligan is giving us. Really great art by Anaka Miranda. Um, some great collage pieces when um, when you're in the, the astral plane. Um, the colors, again, it, he does a great job of, uh, or she, I should say, Ava Dela Cruz does a great job of making it look spooky and otherworldly um, when Dan is in the uh, sort of psychedelic afterlife. Um, but the real world looks as mundane as it ever should, I guess you'd say. So, yeah, if you're a fan of Peter Milligan, if you're a fan, I wouldn't even say this is horror. It's more kind of suspense, like despite the fact that I'm talking about these evil monsters and, and evil entities and whatnot. Um, it, it, this is more of a suspense type type story with a, a heavy dose of mystery. Um, as Dan tries to you know solve the, the mystery of his own, I guess you'd say attempted murder. Um, but yeah, I, I've just been impressed with this the whole time. It's a very compelling read. It's a very quick read. Um, you feel like you get a big chunk of story, but it's one of those, it's a page turner is what it is. So it's uh, it's great. I do recommend it. Once again, an example of Aftershock really firing out on all cylinders. So uh, speaking of firing on all cylinders and Aftershock, Silver City number five, the last issue of the first volume. And I say first volume because this better get another volume. It's from writer Olivia Cortero Briggs. Luca Merrily does the art and the colors. Dave Sharp on letters. We had uh, Olivia on to talk about it before the first issue dropped. I was so anticipatory of it coming out and it's exceeded my expectations on every level. It became so much more than I expected. You know, I expected a moody, haunting sort of horror piece that, uh, you know, kind of a treatise on the idea of the afterlife and how mundane it can be and what that says about us as a species and a society. And Olivia quickly in the second issue turned that on its head and started expanding the scope. And she had told me, she had told me that it was the story, her idea was ideas, I should say, plural, not singular, um, for this world is, is so much bigger than what we just have in this, this first layer, you know, this first world or first circle of the afterlife, which is Silver City. And throughout, with each subsequent issue, Olivia has built that mythology, and she's been masterful at relieve, uh, at uh, revealing a little bit more in each issue, a little bit more about Rue, our our protagonist who died in the first issue and found herself in this mundane afterlife uh, that is Silver City, where you still got to get a job, you still got to pay rent, you still got to find an apartment. And we've learned more and more about Rue with each subsequent issue, which has been both fun and a reason to keep coming back as we've seen Rue grow in, in confidence and in knowledge as she learns to navigate the afterlife and, and her agency, her, um, her, as her knowledge and her confidence have grown, her uh, ability to, to sort of believe that she can do more um, and make the conscious decision to try to do more, to try to do what she thinks is right 
all that has expanded as well. And you can see it sort of infecting the people that she's chosen to surround herself with in Silver City. And that that's relatable. That's something that you, you know, because we all have known people like that, right? Like they're just people that you just, you feel drawn to, you want to be around for whatever reason. And it feels uh, sometimes hard to describe. You can't necessarily put your finger on it, but again, it's just, they just have that certain spark, that charisma. And that comes across both to the reader as we're reading this story about Rue and her adventures in Silver City. And you can also see the way it, as I said, affects the people that she's chosen to surround herself with. And you can understand why they're responding to her the way that they are. Um, And throughout all this, that's happened again over the first five issues, we get little glimpses of, of people's lives in the real world and how they ended up where they ended up. So again, this better only be the first volume. I know this is a huge story, an epic story, and I hope Olivia gets to keep telling stories in this world and telling stories of Rue and, and who she truly is for a long, long time because it's, it's absolutely uh, fantastic. And, and from the first page, the art by Luca uh, Merrily has been moody and very much a mix of sort of action movie with this creepy goth world. Um, and it, it's, it's chaotic at times, but in a good way, um, which sort of uh, along with the colors really sells the idea of this being um, a, a strange place, right? Stranger in a strange land, uh, not our world. You know, and, and you can even look at it in terms of looking at the the cover of of the issue where the colors tend to be a little more, I guess, uh, traditional, you would say. But then when you open the book, again, the, the, the color choices are so different than what you see on, on the color, so non-traditional, and it really sells the mood and the tone of the story. Um, and I love it because it's 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 Luca merely doing the line work and he's doing his own color work. So we're getting exactly what his vision is for this world um, on the page. So I cannot re- recommend Silver City high enough. Like it, it gets my highest possible recommendation. If you haven't read any of it, be sure you're ready for the trade when it comes out. If you can get your hands on all the single issues, I recommend you do that. That way you don't have to wait because this is fantastic. And uh, I hope to hear very soon that uh, there's an issue two coming of, uh, of Silver City because I, ju- I just want more of the story. I feel like we're, we're just getting started. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, okay, up next, another image title, Undiscovered Country. This is written by Scott Snyder and Charles Soule. Art is by Giuseppe Camincoli and Leonardo Marcello Grassi. Colored by... Matt Wilson, letters are by Crank. We know that this uh, this group that was invited to go into the previously closed off United States has entered the zone of possibility. They're looking for this engine of, uh, of creativity. They've supposedly made a deal with George Washington to 
find this engine and and start it up. Uh, and you know, once they do that, uh, supposedly then they'll be allowed to move on to the to the next realm, right? Once they find the anything engine and, and start creating. Uh, but they don't know all they need to know. Uh, we found out last issue that the people they think are helping them may really be just trying to use them because apparently all the actual humans, all the actual people that existed in the zone of possibility ran out of ideas. And the only thing that's left are sort of the living embodiment of that, those ideas. But since they're not people, they don't have imaginations. They don't have that creative spark. They're not actually able to create new works of art, whether that be music or comics or movies or TV shows or whatever, the, the, the beings that still live there are not actual humans. They're just derivative creations. Um, and so those people are trying to manipulate our group of heroes to try to create new, right? It's almost like uh, they're never going to let them go because they need new ideas, right? Uh, we've all seen those stories, whether it's Star Trek or Stargate or whatever, where there's some society that's stagnated and they need a new infusion of usually it's genetic material, uh, whether through cloning or biological means. Hey, we need your biological materials so we can introduce some biological diversity because being a clone of a clone of a clone, you know, copy of a copy of a copy. Uh, it degrades over time or, or what have you. So it's kind of that idea, uh, but flipped on its head for uh, for undiscovered country. So the cool thing about this particular issue, it's very heavily uh, music influenced. So uh, I know Charles Soule himself is a musician. He was in a band in high school, still plays a guitar, very into music. So, uh, and Scott is a huge music fan as well. So I, I got to think that both of them, Charles especially, had a lot of fun uh, putting this issue together and dropping their musical knowledge and referencing old songs and and uh musicians and whatnot so this continues to be a great book for i've talked before about how prescient it is with where we are in the pandemic and the fact these guys came up with this idea like three or four years ago before the pandemic was even a thought in any of our heads and then how <laughs> how relevant it's become in terms of you know the united states closing itself off from the world and whatnot it's kind of spooky in a way um, but yeah, this is, there's been a few, uh, recent issues of undiscovered country where, um, it's not that they haven't been good issues, but they haven't had the same kind of magic that I feel like the, the early issues had. Um, but I felt like the magic was back you know, with this issue. This was one of the best issues in a long time. Um, and maybe it's just that idea of, of creative spark that it really gelled. Um, the, the last couple of issues have felt like, um, very much a part of a bigger narrative, which obviously it is, but what I mean by that is they're better in the context of, of reading it in a big chunk. Um, if you read just, you know, that one issue and you haven't read the previous few issues recently, it doesn't necessarily pull you in as much as it, it might, as opposed to this issue. It, it just like everything is so inspired in this issue and the ideas that are presented are so relatable. I mean, I don't know, maybe it's just cause I love, I love music too, that it really spoke to me. So 
yeah, I thought this was one of the best issues of, uh, of Undiscovered Country in quite some time. So, uh, okay, on to the last book I'm going to talk about. It's from Marvel as well. It's from writer uh, Ryan Caddy. And the art is by Jan Basildua. Colors are by Frederico Blee. Letters by Ariana Mare. It's Winter Guard number two. So the stars a lot of, uh, of Russian, I don't know, heroes, villains, whatever you want to call them in the, in the Marvel Universe. Red Guardian, Yelena Belova, who are listed as persons of interest. And then the actual agents of the Winter Guard, Crimson Dynamo, Red Widow, Vostok, Perun, uh, Chernobus, Vanguard, Darkstar, and Ursa Major. And then they're actually after Red Guardian and Yelena Belova. So I, I don't actually know that much history uh, about these Russian agents in, in the uh, in the Marvel Universe. I, I talked about it when the first uh, first issue of Winter Guard dropped. You, you know, you sort of feel like this the series was time to come out after the Black Widow movie because a lot of these characters show up in that movie. So maybe it's a way for people to learn more about them. I do feel like if you have a deeper understanding of these characters than I do in terms of their history, you might be getting more out of this series than I am. Um, and, and that's not to say it's not action packed or you can't follow it and, and still get some enjoyment out of it. But I don't know. I just, maybe it's the fact that normally when I read comics, I know the history of the characters and where they've come from and, and everything they've been through. And it, it gives me more, more, um, ways into the story and, and more ways to relate to the characters. Um, and I don't have that here. So I guess I feel a little bit lost or a little bit at a, a disadvantage. Um, and it might just be that I need to go back and, and just read it more slowly and more carefully to get more out of it. But even putting all that aside, like just on its own in terms of, okay, I don't want to say it doesn't matter who the characters are, but let's say I don't necessarily have as much knowledge of who these characters are, the interactions between the characters, the actions of the winter guard as they're chasing after red guardian and, uh, and the white widow, all that still works very well. I find myself even without knowing anything about the red widow, really liking the character, wanting to know why she's the way she is. Why is she so hard? Why is she so driven uh, almost to the point of, of zealotry? Um, so yeah, it stands on its own. There is a, a surprise, I'll say, surprise character that shows up on the last page that I wasn't expecting, but has me anticipating the next issue, uh, highly anticipating the next issue. Th this issue too, much like uh, Darkhawk issue two, these issues are exactly the reason why I say, even if the first issue doesn't speak to you, you always need to give a series two issues. Um, because again, just based on issue one, like if it hadn't been Kyle Higgins and I didn't have that rule to always give it to, I wouldn't have read the second issue of, of Darkhawk. But, you know, again, one of my favorite writers, and I, I made that commitment a long time ago, always give something two issues. Same thing with Winter Guard number one. The first issue didn't necessarily speak to me. It was a technically well put together comic, gorgeous art from Jan Basildua. But you know, I was just like, well, this is not for me. I, I don't know who these characters are, you know, whatever. But again, you got to give it two issues. Um, and Ryan Caddy here, uh, the 
strength of his writing in the issue, uh, I feel like, well, it, it's paced very well. And, and the story is interesting enough, even if it's uh, kind of tropey in terms of old spy comes back in from the cold, steals information to kind of expose his um, higher ups that were doing shady things in the past. You know, it's a story we've, we've seen before, but the, the strength of the story, uh, especially as we get it from Ryan, is the interaction amongst the characters. I mean, these, these are when you talk about Red Guardian and White Widow, these are characters don't even necessarily trust each other, but yet are working together. The interaction between this Winter Guard team who don't all trust each other uh, or are used to working together, and maybe the loyalties are going to shift around uh, a little bit. All that is interesting, and it feels realistic, especially when you're talking about spies and cold war stuff and distrust and shifting loyalties like all that works really really well like i said it's, it's a small nitpick but i just and it, it's on me i just wish i knew these characters more like if i had an inter, in, intimate understanding of who these characters are and were and their previous histories with each other i, I would probably be like singing the praises of this book i still recommend it because i think even on its own even if you're like me and you don't really have any uh, previous knowledge of these characters or much previous knowledge of, of the characters, the story still stands on its own. You know, it feels a little bit like a James Bond movie, you know, when the actions turned all the way up to 11. So uh, I do think it's worth picking up. And again, art, very gorgeous, very fine lines from Jan Basildua. Can't wait for the next issue, especially because of that surprise guest that shows up on the last page and how he might tie into the story going forward. Um, and I haven't seen the Black Widow movie, but I got to think uh, that if you're a big fan of it, that you're going to like this because you're going to see a lot of those characters that showed up in the Black Widow movie show up in the pages of uh, Winter Guard number two. So, all right, let me uh, do a quick rundown on some of the other books you might want to be on the lookout for today. I think I talked about all the uh, Aftershock books from AWA. We have Resistance Uprising number six from J. Michael Straczynski, which ties into that connected superhero universe of, uh, of AWA. Uh, Berserker number five of 12 from Keanu Reeves is, uh, and Matt Kent is out from uh, Boom today. Something is Killing the Children as all the way up to number 20. Hard to believe. Feel like that book just started uh, from writer James Tynan over at Boom. And then at uh, DC, and again, we talked about all these books on our DC Spotlight yesterday. We have Action Comics number 1035. We have Batman Reptilian number four of six. Batman Superman number 22. Batman versus Big B, A Wolf in Gotham number one of six. Checkmate number four of six. Uh, a new series, Deathstroke Incorporated number one from writer Joshua Williamson. Detective Comics number 1043. Harley Quinn, number seven, uh, and those last two are Fear State tie-ins. Uh, both Rocky and I chose this next book as our, our favorite DC book of the week, Icon and Rocket, season one, number three, from uh, three of six, I should say, from writer Reginald Hudland. Justice League is up to number 68. We have uh, Mr. Miracle, the Source of Freedom, number five of six, from writer Brandon Easton, with art by Fico Osio. Uh, so only one more issue of that, very uh, anticipatory of uh, the ending of that series, hoping, hoping it can wrap up really, really well. Uh, Robin is up to number six as the Lazarus tournament finally gets underway. We have Superman number 78, 
or Superman 78, rather, number two of six from writer um, Robert Venditti, which is basically what if Richard Donner had gotten to do a Superman three with Brainiac as the villain. Love that. First two issues of that have been fantastic. Love that issue. Uh, Superman, Son of Kal-El, number three from writer Tom Taylor and Wonder Woman, Black and Gold, number four, which uh, has quite a few decent Wonder Woman stories in it and, uh, and a fantastic one from Andrew Constant with art by Nicholas Scott. Uh, over at Image, in addition to the books, uh, I talked about crossover number eight, which was pretty interesting. It feels like that series is taking a little bit of a turn getting a little bit smaller in scope, a little more intimate, and maybe a little more emotionally impactful. But when I read it, and the reason I didn't talk about it in detail was because I feel like I need to go back and reread one through seven um, and then read eight to make sure that I'm understanding what's going on. Uh, Die from Kieran Gellin and Stephanie Hans is up to number 20. Uh, we have Spawn from Todd McFarlane up to number uh, 322. Uh, over at Marvel, Amazing Fantasy, number three of five from Kari Andrews. Uh, Black Cat, number 10, is also out this week, as is Extreme Carnage Omega, number one, which finishes up the Extreme Carnage storyline. We have Miles Morales, Spider-Man, number 30, which celebrates his 10th anniversary. I was a little disappointed in that issue. It's, it's not necessarily oversized, uh, and the first half of the book is, is supposedly the main story, but it felt really, really short. And then they put a couple backup stories in with some uh, creators who've worked on Miles in the past. And I don't know, it just, it didn't feel like a worthy celebration of the character for me. It was just kind of meh. So uh, I didn't talk about it in detail. Uh, Star Wars is up to number 17, as is Thor. Uh, and then I already talked about Winter Guard. And we finish up Marvel with Wolverine number 16. Uh, over at Scout Comics, there's a new two-part mini coming out starting today, Night of the Cadillacs, number one. Uh, I know nothing about it, but Scout's been putting out better and better work uh, of late, so I thought I would mention it. And then uh, from Vault, we have Human Remains, number one, which is supposed to be a, a really creepy, interesting story um, that I'm planning on picking up, and I'll, I'll let you know what I think when I get a chance to uh, to read it. So, um yeah, that does it for uh, some of the other books that I think you might be want to be on the lookout for. Uh, again, it was a, a fantastic week. Some really, really great books. Uh, Silver City blew me away. Inferno, really, really good. Finally got the end of the Kindred story in uh, Amazing Spider-Man. Favorite issue of Department of Truth so far. Same with Good Asian. Uh, so... Yeah, a lot, a lot of great books this week. So be sure you uh, head to your local comic shop and, uh, and check them out. Uh, so that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. As always, we want to thank you all for listening, and we will talk to you next time. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The readings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. 
Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.